This episode is presented by the Cooks Community Premium Podcast Service. Thank you for your support. Hi, my name is Nathan Cook and you're listening to HDR Brews, in other words, High Degree Researchers Drinking Coffee. This small show is designed for academics to put their research interests in the spotlight. Please sit, learn and enjoy a cuppa while we do too. Hello and welcome to HDR Brews, in other words, High Degree Researchers Drinking Coffee. This episode's researcher is Ben Desbro and Cup of Coffee is brought to you by Cafe G. I'm having an iced latte today. Ben, what are you having? I'm having a regular latte with one sugar. One sugar. Correct. The lady at the... Um, there was a fairly negative sort of connotation there when you said sugar. No, I just... Oh, last week I had uh, Jacob on and he said, oh, I wanted a skinny flat white. I'm like, oh, okay, skinny, what's, you know, why is that choice? Because everyone has such a different choice yeah. in their coffee. Yeah. Why do you have just the taste or... I'm, I'm purely a taste man, mate. Yeah. Um, I'll make broad decisions about my diet as an overall picture. But when it comes to the foods that I eat, taste is a is a big factor. Big one. And then it comes back to how much of it I'm eating and how frequently <laughs> I'm having it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, sugar is probably not the critical thing, but yeah, most commonly a latte for me, mate. Yeah, I do enjoy a latte. I've got the I've got the cold one today because obviously the temperature at the moment's just warmed up a bit with the the mugginess outside, but no, it's good. Yeah, I think so. Um, so first of all, Ben, what is your area of research? Um, well, I'm a, a dietitian by training. That's that's my background. So my research is in nutrition. Um, from a career perspective, I've had sort of two phases to my career. One was in um, clinical dietetics in a hospital. So I worked in a hospital for about sort of 10 years or so. Uh, and then uh, uh, as part of that time, I had a, a very, very small part-time um, sports nutrition practice that I used to do on weekends. I was always interested in sport and exercise nutrition uh, then I had a fellowship down in Canberra at the Institute of Sport where I really got exposed to sports nutrition on a full-time basis and ended up coming to Griffith and did my PhD here in sports nutrition. So um, the good thing about nu- nutrition research is that you, you're not often boxed into one area and I've been able to continue to do um, a mixture of both clinical nutrition research and sports nutrition research. Um, and they do sound very different, dealing with you know sick or ill individuals versus um, you know, sports nutrition advice. Um, but for me, uh, the longer I've been researching in both areas, I, I see more and more overlap and consistency between the two. So I often apply skills from my sport work in the clinical stuff and, and vice versa. And also opportunities, research opportunities, um, you see overlaps between the two. Do you find that when, in terms of research of one area to the next, are you quite autonomous in where you decide to go or does it judge on what you previously found in another paper? Like say if you were, for example, when you looked at your caffeine stuff, you didn't go jump into then caffeine in the hospital or something like that. Do you, How do you decide where to go? Yeah, um, I guess fundamentally I just love um, um, answering what I think are interesting questions to me personally. And I, I've been very fortunate to work at a university that has valued... Um, research being conducted rather than directing people to do research in a particular area and, and not being able to autonomously move um, and, and navigate, self-navigate around different ideas. So um, uh, I guess uh, my approach to research has always been to keep my eyes open because you don't know where the next opportunity is going to come from. So we, we've done a lot of caffeine research. Um, that wasn't because I drank a lot of coffee or was addicted to caffeine as a student it was purely opportunistic um, and, and got involved in a caffeine study when I was in Canberra. Um, and it was, a, a, it was a, an interesting study in an environment or in an era when uh, caffeine was just um, being removed from the WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency Prohibited Substances List. So prior to um, uh, the work that, that we'd done in, in the turn of the millennium around 2000, um, prior to that, Caffeine was a banned substance. You couldn't use it in competition for sport, um, and there was a urinary concentration amount that, if you had, if you exceeded that amount, you would have been deemed to have committed a doping offence in competition. Um, WADA decided to remove that, and so we we conducted a study right at the time when it became um, uh, advertised as now being able to be used in sport. Um, but there was still lots of concern, particularly from government agencies, that it was almost legalised doping. 
And so places like the Institute of Sport and sports academies around Australia, which were government-funded, had restrictions on the type of research that they could do. Whereas for me, at a university, no one, you know, provided you're behaving ethically and you're yeah. not doing things completely illegal, things like um, the political flavour of mm. a research project is, is, is not that important. You don't have to worry as much as if you're being, obviously, you know, funded by a federal or state government. Yeah. So it really opened up an opportunity to do research in that area. And then, uh, basically, you know, from a caffeine perspective, we started in sport, and then we started to look at, well, where do people get their caffeine from? How variable is that? Um, what is people's knowledge and attitudes towards caffeine? Um, and then uh, we've had other products come onto the market, pre-workout supplements, energy drinks. All of these things have evolved across those years. Uh, and, again, it's just been in that space, opportunistic, eyes open. Yes, we can do that. We've got the equipment, we've got the facilities, we've got the networks to be able to measure certain things because of previous trials and we can apply that in a new model or a new framework. So um, it, it's, not, it's not that you have to start out a career knowing what you, know, what you need to be doing in 20 years. Um, I, I, my philosophy has always been one that you have to have enthusiasm for answering the question, the current question um, that you're trying to answer and that uh, you, you, you try and keep your eyes open to things that you weren't expecting. Look for the things that you can't control because that may present as an opportunity to explore in another study. Um, and, and just enjoy the ride, really. Uh, don't, don't ever think that you know an area well um, because, uh, for, for me, it's, it's always been this um, exploration of trying to get a better understanding. I don't think we'll ever necessarily completely fully understand the way the human body works, particularly in relation to nutrition, but I'm enjoying the, I'm enjoying the ride to try and learn more. That, that's the big part, I think, of um, what I'm learning now in my early years of, out of, I guess, university is job satisfaction is a major thing that I think I need. And talking to the other Nathan and a few of the other ex-honours students, we kind of looking into going to that research pathway. It's more for that enjoyment and as well as that that thrive for learning like we just want to learn and know new things and that's I think having you as a previous lecturer saying that repeating that um what you just said there about enjoying it and really having that thirst and knowledge is something that we've kind of you've given to us and now we want to become I say, often say we want to be the the new um the new department in like 10 to 15 years good yeah. yeah well that's what that, that's what we want yeah yeah um you know, from from my perspective, um, I got into sport and exercise nutrition because I, I love sport. Mm. You know, it was something I enjoyed. Um, my dad was an electrician, and I got taken on a lot of job sites when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 years of age, lugging cables, never able to do the technical stuff. But, you know, you get the drag cable here through this hole, through this, uh, through this roof, and drop it down this wall. Um, and it didn't take me too long to realise that I enjoyed sport more than I enjoyed doing electrical yeah, work. Electrical work, yeah. Now that that is that is that is no disrespect to mm. tradespeople. Of course not. Yeah. Because you, you see in those workplaces brilliant people, people who work hard, very smart individuals. Mm. But for me, I knew that I couldn't do that for my life. Yeah. So I had to find something that I enjoyed that was going to get me out of bed every morning. Yeah. Now, now there's only a very small proportion of people on the planet who are, who, you know, who are happy to go to work every day. And I feel blessed that I'm one of them. Yeah, definitely. Because um, it, it may not have turned out that way for me. Um, I, I was interested in sport. Um, I did an exercise science degree as an undergraduate degree. I didn't really know what the career outcomes were. I just knew that I liked sport. Partway through that, I thought, well, I'm going to struggle to get a job here at the end. What can I value add um, to the knowledge that I had around sport and physiology? And nutrition was the obvious, relatively short program um, that, that was reasonably novel at the time. There weren't too many people who had degrees in sort of physiology and nutrition. And so I just saw an opportunity. Again, it was just about keeping my eyes open. And it wasn't as if I came up with that opportunity myself. It was just a serendipitous lunch that I had once with a fellow student in my exercise science um, degree. We were having lunch um, at the Uni of Queensland where I did my first degree. 
and uh, was just talking to her about what she was going to do at the end of her her time um, in in our undergraduate program, and she said that she'd been to see the dean because she'd inquired about becoming a dietitian, which in Queensland at the time there was only one degree. It was an eighteen month postgraduate degree at Queensland University of Technology. It was very difficult to get into, notoriously difficult. I knew nothing about what a dietitian did. I just thought knowing about food would help learn about or make me more employable in the exercise space. She'd been to see the dean because our our degree didn't feed directly into the dietetics program and she needed to get a credit overload approval to do some chemistry, additional chemistry and extra biochemistry that was outside of our degree. And and I thought, oh, that's, it's only 18 months. That's not too long to wait to get a job. And it looked like it was uh, achievable. And I'd passed my university um, courses. So I made an appointment with the dean. You had to go and actually see the dean in those days. You couldn't just apply for it online. It wasn't an online in your bed, yeah, on your phone. <laughs> so yeah. I had to go and see the dean, and I said, I, uh, "Let's just call this young lady Michelle." Um, that wasn't her name, but uh, I, I went to see the dean, and I said, um, "Dean, uh, you've seen Michelle two weeks ago. Uh, she's in my program. You approved her courses to do uh, here and here and here to do extra uh, credit, two extra courses in this semester and one extra course in the next semester. I want to do the same." and uh, use the precedent example and he he looked at my academic record and I passed everything and he said I'll go on then and signed the form now now that young lady Michelle she, Michelle, she, she never went on to do dietetics she oh, changed wow. her mind okay like <laughs> she she um, went on a different path again yeah had I not had that lunch with her I, I would not be here probably because yeah. I would never have known to even go and see the dean to say that I could change my degree I, I was so naive yeah but the one thing that I probably had the whole time was enthusiasm. Mm. And, and I, w- I wasn't the smartest person in my cohort in my undergraduate degree. I wasn't the smartest person in my dietetics degree. In terms of pure intelligence, in terms of recall, I, you know, I was probably middle of the road. Mm. But what I, what I had probably more than anyone else was, was enthusiasm and a thirst for wanting to better myself and, and, and as you alluded to, get into a job that I thought I could, I could enjoy. Yeah. So you start off in life thinking, oh, it'd be really nice to have a lot of money. Yeah. Nice car, you know, all plush sort of toys that you can get. And then, then you realise that there's a lot of jobs where you potentially could get those things, but you'd be fundamentally unhappy as well mm. in the day-to-day. So I, I was looking for the, um, you know, my, my cake and to eat it, you know, do something that carrot you... Carrot cake. <laughs> <laughs> carrot cake, yeah, we just had some carrot cake. You know, do something that you love and hopefully it will pay you enough to to have a comfortable life as well. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's really cool. I like, I like hearing your experiences and I guess your, you know, early days type of thing back now where people can apply for dietetics straight, you know, well, while they're still in year 12. Like, it's such a different field these days and compared to back then especially with research it's not something that you get really advertised to when you're at that undergrad stage or in year 12 they don't really say hey did you want to become a researcher it doesn't even come across your mind you're like oh exercise science or yeah. psychology or I would say mo- most of the big career defining moments I've had have not come from um, you know investigating you know I mentioned we didn't have the internet you know yeah. web pages or information booklets or anything like that the big, the big pivotal turning moments that I've had in my career have come because of human to human contact. Yeah, networking's huge. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 sometimes it's been fortuitous, like that time that I had that lunch with that young lady I described. Other times, you know, when I went to Canberra, that was a real uh, turning point in my mm. life and my career. Um, I had contact with Louise Burke and Greg Cox and and a number of other people who who were at the Institute of Sport. Um, you know, guys like Dave Martin and Alan Hahn were in the physiology department, um, and and they were just they were just incredibly knowledgeable individuals about nutrition, about physiology, M- more so than the type of learning that I'd been exposed to, which was the you know learn 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 this diagram, remember these things, remember these facts. Here's an exam, spit the data out. Um, have a memory dump because you've got another exam coming in, you know, a day's time or two days' time, and you get very good at that sort of process of mm. passing exams. And you know, and obviously, the further you go through university, the more accomplished you become yeah. at doing that. Um, when I went to Canberra, the, the staff there were 
just genuinely had that thirst for knowledge. And, and a lot of the knowledge they had wasn't in textbooks yet. It was in journal articles that were just coming out or in articles that were under review because they'd written them or collected the data. Yeah. I was going to say, the knowledge and they, is in their brain. Yeah. And they were moving on to the next study. So you were physically collecting data on a study that nobody else was aware of. Their previous data was you know, going through the review process. They knew what the outcomes were. They were already working on the next step. And I was like, well, this is just, this is just you know, I've never been exposed to research and researchers that created such a warm environment, such an interest in learning for learning's sake, trying to do the best research that you could. Mm. But they, they were also really welcoming. There wasn't a hierarchy of, well, that's a professor over there, yeah. and you won't be talking to, to that person. You'll have to you know talk to the three or four I see who'll pass the message up the line. Mm. Like you, I, I remember writing articles with Louise where we would sit around, literally sit around her computer, yeah. and, and, and she'd uh, type a sentence, and then she'd go, no, that's not right, and she'd delete it, and then she'd rewrite it. And then she'd go, no, I want to change this bit and bring this bit in, or here's a reference that I had, and, and she'd bring that in. And then she'd turn and go, well, what do you guys think? You know, can we write this any better? And I'd be like, well, that's the most brilliant sentence I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it wasn't as if, like, it was, it was, it was encouraging. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't dominating. It yeah. wasn't, there wasn't power play there. It was just impressive, mm. you know. It was impressive on this is a person who's already you know, a world-leading researcher in their area, but they still have a thirst for learning more, mm. and they're not being critical of my knowledge or trying to gazump me by demonstrating how smart they are. They don't have time for that. Yeah. They're not interested in that. What they're interested in is understanding more and providing peop- other people with opportunities. Yeah, and, and they're open to you coming with new ideas or new anything. Yeah. She didn't say, well, I'm Louise Burke. Yeah. I've got, you know, see those pictures on the wall there that are all textbooks? They're all mine. She turned and said, what do you, think, what do you guys think of this sentence? Can we, can we improve it in any way? And I was, as I said, I was like, well, uh, maybe a comma. You know? <laughs> I was just <laughs> actually out there. <laughs> actually, no, don't put the comma there. That's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but, you know, it's, 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 it's not just the knowledge it's it's the 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 capacity to engage with other people and want the best for them. Yeah. And like that to me, I was I was just like, oh that I, I really I worked most weekends, got paid next mm. to nothing. Yeah. Didn't care. The experience would have just overthrown you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was it was it was it was great. And 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 now uh, and it led to a whole bunch of mm. um, opportunities for me personally. I worked for the British Olympic team at one point. Louise opened that door for me because oh, wow. I was looking for someone. Yeah. Um, and the, but I guess the thing that it taught me more than anything else was that uh, you know that that's how to build a research team. Mm. You know that that's how you build a, a an environment of learning. You don't build an environment of learning by, as I say, dominating someone else's intelligence by showing them or trying to demonstrate to them how busy you are and how much you know. You know, what you build people up by getting them to come along on what seems to be a pleasurable journey with you. And 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 that's that's the that's the approach that that's that philosophy resonated with me. I, I was like I, I could do that for the rest of my life. Mm. I, I could try and answer questions in a way where other people find it enjoyable to to answer those questions with you. Yeah. And I didn't realise how much I enjoyed it. And, and now I'm in a situation where I'm very fortunate because, like, if a piece of equipment breaks, you know, you come into the lab in the morning and someone's doing an experiment and this machine breaks, I'm like, oh, machine broke. You know, the poor student's like, oh, my God, you know, this, yeah. <laughs> this is my career on the line. <laughs> and, and because of being through that, yeah. you sort of move, you move sort of beyond where you're sort of interested in the outcome and the data but you don't have to worry about them, you know, the minutiae. You know, you still, you know, recognise and yeah, have empathy for it. Yeah. But you don't have that acute pressure, that time pressure. Um, and for me, that, you know, that, that's been, you know, I, I do feel as though I've been very fortunate to find a job that I enjoy. I, I, I get paid every fortnight. I don't, I'm not subcontracted to a builder who's just gone bust. Yeah. And I've done six months worth of work, and all of my materials are, are in this building site, and I'm, not, I'm going to get five cents in every dollar mm. for what I've invested. I, I've seen that, 
Yeah, yeah. And it happens, yeah, of course. I've seen it in my own family. Mm. I mean, you run your own business and, you know, good, bad things happen to good people, right? I, I, I don't get exposed to solar radiation. I sit in my office yeah, or sit in my lab. level two, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm not a physical risk. So the least you can do is create an environment to capitalise on the opportunities that you've got, right? And to walk around down and this level with smiles, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good feeling, especially, oh. like, yeah it's, yeah, it's a nice environment to be here. Well, and it's it's the people that make the environment. Yeah, definitely. Any 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 environment, the physical environment, obviously can have some ups and downs or good points mm-hmm. and bad points. But if the people are miserable within it, it's the human beings that make a place. Yeah, right? definitely. It doesn't doesn't matter what equipment you've got. You can do some really good science with very little budget, very little equipment, just good enthusiasm, good rigor. Yeah, good team. Yeah. You can, you can achieve some amazing things. And it sounds like that's what happened at the AIS. So if you can you just please take us through, like, and you've kind of mentioned it, like your research pathway from the beginning until now, was that where it started at the AIS? Um, no, my first papers um, that I have, I have published, they came after I finished dietetics. I went back to the Human Movement Studies Department at UQ to finish off what was an exercise physiology degree. So I hadn't done the PRAC component of the exercise physiology degree that I'd started. So I'd left with a basic science degree, but it was Mm. in exercise science. Um, And then went over and did dietetics because I got an early offer to do dietetics and they they wouldn't let me defer. So I did the dietetics and then went back. Oh, wow. So um, the whole idea was to go back and finish both degrees. So I ended up doing that. And in in going back into the exercise area, because I was a qualified dietitian, I got... I got involved in a couple of research projects where I was involved just in basic dietary standardisation. So they weren't dietary studies, mm. but controlling dietary intake leading into a leading into a trial was going to be important when they, you know, were testing a different variable. So they were the first exposures to research, um, very peripheral. Uh, then I did a study um, which wasn't really a study, I wasn't intending it to be a study. Uh, at work, when I was a clinician, I worked with. Um, I, was, I used to service the hemodialysis patients at the hospital that I worked in. There was about about 40 to 50 patients um, that would rotate through two, three times a week. And I got to know the hemodialysis patients, um, great, a great population of individuals to work with from a, a science perspective because um, they turn up. Mm. You know, if your hemodialysis patients are not turning up, uh, something has gone gravely wrong. Yeah, you got to go find them. <laughs> well, uh, you know, th- 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 it's it's obviously a, a, a life-saving um, routine therapy that they need. So um, so they turn up, and so you get to know them as well. Mm. Um, and you can put interventions in place and then track those interventions for a period of time. So the, fir- the first study that I got involved in there was just looking at malnutrition screening. So um, subjective global assessment was only relatively new. And, and patient-generated subjective global assessment, which was um, it, 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 it had only just been potentially highlighted as something that um, might be a tool that clinicians might use. So I did a validation study comparing um, subjective global assessment and, and patient-generated subjective global assessment in um, renal patients, and that got published in the Journal of uh, Renal Nutrition. And that was the first first author paper that I'd had. And I just did it because I wanted to use this new tool mm. and I just applied a systematic approach to my work. I didn't do any more work. I wasn't involved in research as such. I had to have ethics, obviously, yeah. um, to use the data. But it was, it was the sort of practice that I wanted to do just to... It was a quality assurance project where I was looking at a new tool and applying it in my patient population. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I was I was involved in trying to I guess systematically do my work and think about whether I could do my work more effectively or have greater impact, and then I got the fellowship in Canberra, and that that really changed my thinking around having a career in research because mm. I ended up I think public I think we published about four papers from the year in a whole range of areas, um, caffeine, as I mentioned, fat adaptation. We did a number of fat adaptation studies where we'd take people and give them a high-fat diet for five days and prepackaged all their food and muscle biopsies. And yeah, I was both a participant and a researcher in those days. I could ride a bike, so you were, I was a guinea pig. Yeah. So I got my fair share of biopsies. <laughs> yeah, I haven't had my first one yet. I'm quite scared to get one. Yeah, I've had my last. I, I, I think I had, ended up having about 10 across oh, the year. Wow. 
And I thought, well, I'll, that'll do. The whole idea was to get some experience so I knew what participants were going through. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you, you're young and silly, right? And you think muscle will just grow back. <laughs> um, and uh, I guess that, as I said, that shaped me in terms of my attitude towards research. Um, I got a real kick out of being the first to know something. Mm. And that, that hasn't left me. You know, when, when um, a student comes to me with their spreadsheet and says, here's the data from the study... And I say to them, well, what's the answer? And they go, well, I don't, I don't know. I said, have you put it in the statistics package? And they're like, oh, I, I don't know how to use it. And I'm like, <laughs> give it to me. <laughs> you know, just, uh, you know, we're one click away from finding out the answer. Let's, yeah. you know, let's sit together and do it. And, you know, I, I sort of think, um, you know, that to me is, um, you know, the fact that I still have a desire to want to answer those questions and, and do things that, I find interesting, but and hopefully um, discuss them in a way that's infectious enough for other people to also become, you know, um, aware and, and thinking about, you know, the world they live in in, in relation to the food that they eat. Hmm. I'm not a nutrition Nazi. I don't want to tell people yeah. to not do things all the time. I just want to understand why they do, provide them potentially with alternatives, think about how to manage people's behaviour, um, understand why they make the decisions that they do and, and, and support them to make um, decisions that are not going to compromise their health through nutrition. And, and you know, occasionally it involves carrot cake, right? Yeah, carrot cake, that definitely, yeah, it was good. I loved it. That was my you liked it? Yeah, it was good, yeah, made yeah. by Ben himself. Yeah. Very yeah. good. Yeah, well, that's, um, that's what happens when your wife has a birthday, you know, you've got to pull out all the stops, right? Yeah, that's get, good, get yeah, Valentine's Day today. Yeah, well, well... Uh, no, I, um, I I said to my wife um, that she's already found love, so I don't know if we need to <laughs> to do Valentine's Day. But I, that's that's the very boring, unemotive academic in me, right? The very pragmatic. Is it Valentine's Day about finding love as opposed to? What's the real question here? What's the answer? I don't know. Let's talk nutrition, shall we? And so from the fellowship, yeah, that's right, stay away from the fellowship. go down a dark hole. Moved on to Griffith? Uh, yeah, well, I went back and worked as a clinician for um, a couple of years and then um, and published, uh, I did my master's and did a study at, uh, using the labs at the Queensland Academy of Sport. It was a, um, a carbohydrate-based cycling study, a performance study. Uh, because the one thing that the university, uh, sorry, the uh, AIS experience didn't provide me with the, was a university qualification. So I had, mm. by that stage, I probably had about six papers, um, and 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 no um, honours equivalent type. Oh degree. wow! Okay, yeah. Jeez. And so um, I did m- master. Yeah. Well, I guess it, it was a fellowship, and that was probably the one deficit in the fellowship is that it wasn't tagged to a university like the University of Canberra, where you might have got a academic recognition for yeah. the fact that you'd been involved in research Um, but nonetheless so I ended up doing a a master of uh, human nutrition through Deakin as a distance student so I did the coursework online by that stage yeah (laughs) and then uh, I did a research project using um, the labs at the Queensland Academy of Sport um, and published that um, and that was good and then one day when I was working um, I got a call from a fellow Sean Somerset I think was Sean it was either Sean or Roger um, uh, saying, I think, no, it was Sean encouraging me to apply for a job that they had down at Griffith on the Gold Coast, a lecturer job. And I sort of said to him, Well, I don't have a PhD, I'm not going to be competitive. Uh, they wanted someone to teach clinical nutrition. And he explained to me that um, they'd run a round of interviews, um, no one had applied who had a PhD, people had applied with clinical experience, but no one had any research. And he said, well, um, I'm aware of you and I know that you've got some publications um, and you have an honours research equivalent degree. Would you consider coming and teaching and, and you'll have to do your PhD while you're here if you were to get the job? And so I thought, well, I'll throw my hat in the ring and ended up getting the job and then getting a it was four or five year probation, which to me is not a probation. <laughs> uh, and the probation said, yeah, you need to have made significant progress on doing your PhD. So I started a job here. Uh, my first job was an academic lecturing um, in clinical dietetics and, and advanced nutrition and running the placement program oh, and wow. trying to do a PhD at the same time. 
and that's split across like eight people in this hallway now it <laughs> is yeah, all at yeah. once. and yeah. so uh it was busy and then within about 18 months um i was sort of appointed to the program director role so i was responsible for the the masters in nutrition and dietetics here while doing the trying to do my phd and so that was that was that was that was busy the advantage that I had was that the clinical dietetic stuff was pretty straightforward. Mm. Um, I knew more than the students um, <laughs> very, very easily. Yeah. Uh, and really, it was about going in and telling them about what I used to do on a daily basis um, across different areas. So I'd, I'd, I'd worked in oncology. I'd worked in dialysis, I mentioned. Uh, everyone's done cardiac stuff. Everyone's done diabetes because, mm. you know, these things span across all of the other conditions that you see. Um Medical nutrition therapy, gut. I've done a fair bit of gut surgery, parenteral, enteral nutrition, all of that sort of stuff. So for me, that was a no-brainer. I only had to teach people who knew nothing, yeah, a little bit, and I could pretty much do that as a walk-up start, and still seem very intelligent to these people. I mean, in terms of knowledge around any of those areas, yeah, obviously there's a spectrum, right? Yeah, of course. But you're teaching entry-level dietetics, survival mm. in a hospital, yeah. so you don't have to go to the nth degree in each of those topics. And I had. I had bucket loads of content. So I could come in and do that real really quickly. Um, the placement side of things was a, a much bigger time management commitment. Mm. You know, as you can imagine, people going out on placements, a tough gig, and it's oh, not yeah. always... Straightforward. It's not always smooth. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I was doing... Uh, my PhD was in cola beverages and endurance exercise performance. So there was no sports nutrition research here. There was no... To be honest, there was no nutrition research here. There was a bit mm. of public health stuff, but yeah. pretty small and not many publications. Hardly anyone using exercise science labs, and as I said, nobody in sports nutrition. So it was very much a, a greenfield site. Um, I, I'll have to be honest and say there were a couple of times I thought I'm done here. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll go and had opportunities to go back to Canberra or go to Melbourne and thought seriously about doing it. But by that stage, I had a, a, a wife and a young child and... Uh, who I'd already dragged my wife to Canberra initially and then she'd come back and now we had a young baby. And within a very short period of time, we had a second one, mm. which um, for I describe as for a brief period in my life, probably about 18 months, I was irresistible, Nathan. I was... <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was I had people... Uh, well, one particular person couldn't keep her hands off me. Yeah. And so as a result, I've got two children that yeah. are pretty close in age. They're only... 15 months apart that's gone now would I'm, you say I'm, that was Ben, ben at his peak <laughs> possibly I mean the evidence suggests that that was a, a rich vein of form yeah <laughs> so yeah that was uh, yeah that's that's my claim to fame is that I have evidence that I was absolutely yeah the man uh, I, I was I was irresistible for at least a year <laughs> and then you've moved now from not teaching so you're not teaching or you teach one course no, I teach a couple. So, yeah. I, but um, so I teach the honors students. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, yeah. Their, their coursework, and then I teach the sports nutrition, the large sports nutrition class in the second part of the year. Yeah. Um, and occasionally, um, I do some tutoring for Chris's nutrition undergraduate course, but uh, and then I do a sprinkling of other guest lectures at, at different times. Anthropometry and stuff in MNT and things like a, that. Bit of anthropometry. Um, last year, I did a lecture to medical students. Um, and some physiotherapy students, things like that. So I try and um, spread the good word. Yeah. <laughs> as and much you, as you can. Are you, are you still kind of focusing your teaching back on what you did back then, or is it all new stuff now in terms of when you're teaching? Um, well, <clears throat> the sports nutrition stuff is all is all new. It's, yeah. Uh, things, I mean, when I say it's all new, you can't explain where we're at unless you mm. go back in terms of understanding the progression of learning. So... It's new in terms of the last few slides. It's it's like building a castle. You've got to start with this is this is this is the path of inquiry that people have gone on. This is what we now know. Yeah. So rather than just going, well, this is what we now know, and not giving people the context of that, I think there's value in understanding where we've come from. And sports nutrition is a relatively, you know, young discipline. Mm. And so you know, if you go back into the '60s and '70s, that's probably where the the earliest sort of groundswell of um, knowledge has come from, you know, when you've got the advent of uh, muscle biopsy techniques, the Bergstrom, you know, Holtman sort of era, yeah. um, Dave Costill through the 70s and 80s, um, you know, that, that's when you start to see a, a, a real 
interest in physiology that was potentially influenced by nutrition. So, so most of the early sports nutrition experts were physiologists. Yeah, they yeah. weren't they weren't dietitians. Mm. They weren't nutritionists. They came from trying to understand how the muscle worked within the context of the entire body and the things that influence performance. And obviously, nutrition became of interest from that perspective. A huge part, yeah. Yeah. And so, what are you working on now? Um, well, we still we still do some caffeine research, so there's yeah. still some unanswered questions there. Um, so one of the things that we're looking at at the moment is sources of caffeine, because you can get caffeine from coffee, obviously, as we've just done. Yeah, you can get it from energy drinks, as I mentioned. You can get it from um, from tablets, ready strips is a strips, new one. Yeah, yeah, oral strips, chewing gum. Um, someone sent me some caffeinated uh, potato chips at one point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's one of those things that can be spread across different food sources. Um, we, we haven't re- really um, got an understanding of um, the, the source of caffeine and whether that has an influence or not because obviously with the source of caffeine there can be other constituents as mm. well that might be um, performance enhancing or, or, or ergolytic, so uh, performance compromising. Um, uh, and so we, we're doing uh, some work in that space at the moment. Um, we're still... Um, doing some work in um, recovery uh, nutrition uh, we've moved into uh, an environment where we're being less prescriptive so rather than saying here have this drink drink this many mils every 20 minutes mm. we're providing access to certain things and just watching people and seeing what they do and look for the interaction between food and fluid yeah. that's been some of the most interesting work I've been involved in in the last couple of years um, you know, which in a nutshell has sort of demonstrated that um, probably the type of fluid that you use from a rehydration perspective becomes less critical when there's food available, which is most of the time for most people. Um, but what does uh, what does come as a consequence of the flu- the fluid that you choose uh, is, is the total calorie intake that you have. So, depending on what your other nutritional or anthropometric goals might be, the choice of fluid becomes um, very important because of the um, broader implications of that, as opposed to um, rehydration, because mm. your body's pretty good at rehydrating pretty quickly, yeah. and that's a survival technique. You, know, you, you can die from dehydration faster than any other nutritional compromise. So when someone's body is dry, there's multiple systems at place that are trying to t- extract fluid from food, extract and, 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 um, and store that fluid as effectively as it can. And when you've got food available, you've got that really nice mixture of um, potentially fluid coming in from a variety of fluids, but also you've got the nutrient mixture from food, which helps in that the retention of that. That's cool. Yeah. I really like that. And I'm learning, like, I'm very early in my sports nutrition, I guess, knowledge and career. Like, I'm learning about physiology now and learning about, like, Gatorade isn't just for, you know, AFL players. It can be used here. It can be used there. It can be through for everyday runners things like that and then what you're talking about I think you mentioned like calorie content if you're worried about like say physique you, if you're going to drink something like milk or water or Gatorade there's heaps of different things that come with that like when we did lean stuff how well I hydrated more with the milk compared to water and stuff like that yeah. So, but, but then you have to put that in the context of usual behaviour right mm. so milk you do you do retain the fluid content of milk really really well um, but um, you know, you can't necessarily drink liters of it. Yeah, which we without have to feeling, do. Yeah, <laughs> without feeling very full. Yeah, and and would you do that in practice? Probably not. Mm. And what we do know is that when we give you an ad libitum choice, you don't drink that much milk. So even though it's well retained, the actual total volume you consume is not great. However, water, which we would normally consider to be, if you drank a lot of it acutely, a lot of it would be lost as mm. um, a volume induced diuresis. So your kidneys would just flush a lot of it out. As soon as you start eating, so if you've got um, some food content with that, uh, the water gets uh, quite well uh, retained. And, and the body does a great job of rehydrating using different fluids, provided that there's food available. Now, if you're in, the, in an environment where you don't have food available and you like milk, well, that might be a great choice for you. Yeah. Alternatively, if you're going to look to provide a fluid that's going to not want you to get up in the middle of the night and wee because you've had a large volume of it before you go to bed, milk might be a good choice for that. Better, yeah. Um, but for most people, the majority of time who are doing exercise, they're trying to look good naked, right? Yeah. They're trying to 
probably burn off calories. Trying to get then, to that irresistible then, then milk, stage, yeah. That milk or, or sports drink is probably going to undermine those attempts if, they, if they're consuming that from a rehydration perspective. They'd be just better off drinking water and mm. having some food. Mm. And you, you, your total calorie intake is likely to be lower in that instance. Oh. Yeah. And what's next? I know it's like kind of hard to, to look into the future in terms of research because you've got to wait for what you find, but what are you looking into next? Yeah, so we, we continue to do some alcohol-related uh, research. Um, you know, we dabble in caffeine, we dabble in alcohol. Uh, nature's great gifts. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, we, we, we have been recently looking at um, effects uh, that have been moderated through um, increase in overload training, um, functional overreaching and strategies looking at recovery. Um, there's some interesting research emerging around um, athletes with different fibre type predominance, so whether you're a type 2 fast twitch type individual versus a, a type 1 um, slower twitch endurance type individual and the amount of time that you need to recover from those things irrespective of your nutritional intervention um, may, may be different so we, we may have a look at some of that and, and there's some technology that we have on campus with collaborators who are in the local area here where, you, where they've been able to identify muscle fibre type without um, just using MRI so without oh, doing wow. invasive work Yeah. so probably a little bit more uh, perhaps in that space I think I think this uh, the world of sleep is um, probably an area that we're going to become interested in as well so looking at pre-feeding um, before um, night time um, changes in um, sleeping patterns um, we see poor sleep behaviors in many active individuals and so having strategies that look at in the interaction between not only supplying nutrients from a substrate recovery perspective but also enhance sleep sleep quality. So looking at the interaction between substrate replacement and sleep and trying to, to improve people's recovery, um, I think that's probably an area of, of interest as well. Um, and we've got, a, we've got a really simple study going on at the moment um, just looking at um, ad libitum meals in a laboratory environment where we're, where we're trying to determine how long you need to keep somebody after an ad libitum meal. Um, in order to ensure that the ad libitum meal has a, is a measure of their appetite, not just a measure of, of their food preference. Um, and so if we were to give you a smorgasbord of food, for instance, mm. or we give you a meal, let's say we give you a macaroni and cheese meal, a very basic meal, after a period of time and say, just Nathan, go and eat as much of this as you want and because we're interested in your appetite. Mm. Maybe we've done an exercise intervention or something and we're looking at your appetite responses. If we say to you, well, just eat as much as you want and when, you, when you're finished, you can go, it is possible that you go straight from here up a flight of steps to G's and go and eat something that you want. Mm. And you don't eat our food because you just don't like it and you've got immediate access to other food. Yeah. So it's, it, it's, a, it's a relationship which is reflective of appetite and palatability and convenience. And so what we want to know is, is that acceptable to do that? Do we need to keep you for half an hour or maybe an hour or maybe two hours or three hours in the lab? And, and what happens after somebody leaves the lab and how variable then does that influence what they eat in the lab? So it's a very simple methodological study, mm. but it's important for us to understand from, from our future studies. You know, we don't want to keep people in the lab for three hours if we, can only, if we only need to keep them for one hour. Yeah. Or we can send them straight out. Yeah. It doesn't make any difference because then we can justify the behaviours that we have in the lab. So sometimes we do studies to help us with our next study. (laughs) Nonetheless, they're they're fundamentally important questions because they haven't been asked before in a sort of rigorous... And that comes back to what you said before. It's like you've got to start where we came from to get where we want to go. So you can say in my interpretation, that's like, okay, we want to go do this, but we don't know what that is yet. So we've got to do all these things first. And then then two years down the track, sweet, we've got all this data, we've got... We know how to do this. This, is, we start, this is starting to sound like a PhD. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so a PhD is basically, you know, define what you're going to do and do it as well as you can. Mm. Move the science forward, demonstrate your ability to do it independently. You know, we hold your hand for the first couple of years, but yeah. by the end you should be able to do most things by yourself. But you show a programmatic approach to your research. So it doesn't matter how big the box is, the area that you're working in, 
it doesn't matter if it's really large because no one else has done any research in that area or it's really small it's you know got a lot of other researchers that have produced a lot of data in that in that 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 discipline or that particular subdiscipline the key is that you do something well that breaks ground in that space and so if you've got something that's got a lot of research done on it and you do something that's sloppy, that's, that's a train wreck, mm. right? That's not what we want. So you need to know your area very well, understand the landscape and say, okay, I think we can do this, but in order to do this, these are the things that we're going to need to be very tight on in order to move the science forward in that area. And sometimes it's easy to move the science forward because, as I said, it's yeah. a pretty blank landscape and you're the first to move into it. And other times, you're going on a path that many people have tread before. No. <laughs> and so you want to know, this berry I can eat, this berry I cannot. <laughs> I hope my journey in the next couple of years is more on the, on the, the all the berries that we want to eat type of pathway. Well, provided there are some berries you can eat. Yeah. Okay. You know, occasionally you might pick one and go, oh, this could go either way. But provided you've got a backup plan as to how to detox yeah. from that berry okay. <laughs> that's the key right and that's and that's that's what your supervisors can help yeah. you with because you might be passionate about doing one thing but a good supervisor will go oh I've done similar studies to this before and there's a good chance you won't see an effect mm. and if we don't see an effect where does that leave us so let's let's forecast down the path where we might be before we even set off on this trek and is there something else that we can do as an insurance policy on the first path that means if we do find that that's where we are, we've now got a new map that will take us off. In, and so that, that's, that's the key to good person management in a, in a PhD is trying to think about, well, okay, what, what, what is, what's our plan B? What's our plan C? Mm. Maybe even a plan D. Yeah. Hospital. Bit of charcoal. Get rid of that berry. Right? <laughs> we're going to need. We're going to need a complete departure here. Stop the alphabet in your backpack. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So I mean, uh, yeah. It, it, I feel far more confident doing that in the areas that I'm familiar with. Mm. I'd like you to tell us about one of your favourite papers of yours, and then something for the listeners to read. Now, Jacob mentioned something interesting last week. He's like, "Is this any pit, any bit of literature, or just?" journal literature I said well that's a really good question because I know a few people who have written some books so whatever you would like you think I know I'd like you to tell us about yeah favourite paper of yours and one um, that you are reading at the moment or one that you've read um, I guess um, in terms of favourite paper I, I wouldn't necessarily say um, that I have one particular favourite paper mm. um, but what I love doing and what I think uh, one of the things I think is a great joy of a PhD is to go back and really, as I was talking before about, understand the landscape, right? Understand the people who've gone down your path. And sometimes you see things, um, you know, you might see a systematic review and it says, you know, uh, rate limited to 1980. So all of the papers from 1980 onwards. And I'm like, but there was some really good shit that happened in the 70s and 60s and 50s. And so, as I mentioned, my PhD was in cola beverages and endurance exercise. And so, one of the things that I did with my PhD is um, go back into the history of cola beverages. So, this is not journal articles. This mm. is, well, what, how, do, how do you make a cola beverage? How was how it created? What's it, what's it formed from? Um, where do they come from? Where's Coca-Cola come from? Why do we have Pepsi-Cola and Coca-Cola? you know what's in them mm. and has that evolved and and so that that was fascinating because um it allowed me to go back and look at a whole range of different literature um right from joseph Priestley, the fellow who um discovered a number of really important um chemistry molecules like carbon monoxide carbon dioxide he 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 was involved in carbonating water so if you're talking cola beverages they start with carbonated water and then you add a syrup to them so guys like Joseph Priestley, um, who, who was, um, you know, is a chemist, um, a physicist, you know, the, a, a biologist, the, these individuals are often very religious um, people. Um, they, they were masters of several broad science disciplines because they were sort of all clustered um, in an amorphous mass of science. 
as you know, we wouldn't see a physicist now making comments about chemistry. Mm. You know, they would leave that to a chemist. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but 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 in the, in those times, um, you know, you had to be a master of multiple domains. Mm. So so he he um, he was involved in being able to uh, demonstrate carbon dioxide or the production of carbon dioxide, and then through a couple of other steps, are able to. Um, carbonate water, Joseph, uh, not, not Joseph, Schwepp, as in Schwepp. Oh, wow. He, okay. he, uh, he, he was a uh, Swiss um, chemist who... So, so carbonated water was considered medicinal. Right? It was like mineral water. Mm. And, so if you, and so people would bathe in these mineral baths, right, and effervescent oh, wow. baths, and it was considered a luxury. You know, royalty and kings and queens would use these baths. So there was a desire, a commercial desire, to want to try and produce these artificially, um, this, this sort of bubbly carbonated water. So, so there were some scientific um, patents put on carbonating water, um, trying to understand how to do it. And, and um, Priestley was involved, as I said, in carbon dioxide, understanding and, and being aware of the production of carbon dioxide. As I said, he also, as far as I understand, discovered carbon monoxide, which you think about carbon monoxide, the discovery of that is a deadly, odorless gas. Mm. You know, proving that it exists is a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> what is this thing? Yeah. Um, so, you know, an amazing human. Um, and then following the evolution of cola beverages, um, as, you know, starting with carbonated water, these mineral waters uh, that were then being produced by soda machines in pharmacists, pharmacies because they were, they were medicines, mm. And then in order to enhance the medicine, people started to put these elixirs together, these syrups that would go in. So a bit of this herb, a bit of that herb, a bit of cocaine, a bit of... Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, they would formulate these medicines, these flavoured medicines that you would go to your local drugstore. They would have carbonated water, they'd tip the syrup in, and, and you, you know, one drugstore to the next drugstore to the next drugstore would have their own personal recipe. And um, that's effectively how Coca-Cola started and Pepsi-Cola started. They started as particular syrups, particular recipes that were added to carbonated water and sold as medicines. They were life elixirs, you know. And so um, you can see um, stories in the literature from late 1800s of people writing to um, pharmacists who were selling um, Coke in, in around Georgia saying, look, um, can you stop calling it uh, a medicine because I like drinking it, I like the taste of it, and I feel guilty mm. by consuming it. And a guy, um, Asa Chandler at the time, was a guy who was sort of in... in um, had a, a licence or had bought a pharmacist, and he, he a pharmacy rather, and, and he was receiving these um, letters and then realised, look, we've got, to, we've got to change the way this is sold. Rather than being seen as, you know, it'll cure your headache, it'll get you over a, a hangover, um, you know, it'll, it'll stop you getting ill, we're going to say, well, this will make you just, this will, this will take a healthy person and, and make you a better person. <laughs> yeah. You know, just so, so drink it even when you're not unwell. Yeah, yeah. You know, and all of a sudden it moved from being a, a medicine to being a, as I say, a life enhancer. Access to everyone then. Yeah, yeah broaden yeah. it out. Yeah. People don't feel guilty and away you go. So... Part of my PhD was about you know, understanding the background of that and then, and then looking at things like caffeine, which is obviously a component, and the influence that, that has on um, human performance. Um, and so you've got papers from 1906, 1907, um, individuals like uh, Rivers and Weber, um, two individuals at University of Cambridge who um, were doing some work looking at giving caffeine, caffeine abstinence. I think uh, one of the papers reports ca- a caffeine abstinence period of um, I think 12 months. It, it was an extended period of time mm. before they gave um, caffeine oh, wow. to their two participants who happened to be themselves. <laughs> so they, you know, you, I, I can't imagine a horror uh, as, as, as great as caffeine abstinence for 12 months. But yeah, <laughs> a long time now. Yeah. And, and then, and then the, the paper is magnificent because it's actually um, hand-drawn graphs, you know, uh, and underneath is this, you know, subject one. Um, you know, Weber, or just in the, the initials, yeah. and then you can see the the plots, the individual plots. They used a um, ergogram, which was basically a, a wrist lifting exercise against a weight, and they just kept repeating the lift, and they could measure how high the weight was lifted, and they could look at fatigue, fatigability pre and post caffeine. 
um, th- they looked at a range of compounds. It wasn't just caffeine, but they, yeah. you know, they, they, the stuff that I found um, was was on caffeine and that sort of stuff. I just think I think, I think it's just fascinating because mm. these people are brilliant. They just they just didn't have either the equipment or the years and you know decades of pre, pre previous data to go off. But you look at the data in terms of how it's written um, and, the, and the forecast that they make, mm. and, and many times they, they were right. Yeah, yeah. They probably made the claim too early based on making plenty of assumptions from their, from their perspective, and they're probably a bit bold yeah. in saying, yeah, well, this definitely works. <laughs> but it turns out that they, they were actually right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I, I think, you know, from a student's perspective, you had so few opportunities to really take a deep dive into the literature, and that's one of the great joys of the PhD, is you've got probably six months or so yeah. to really Jump get in. in there and have a look, you know. And yeah. there's, there's some brilliant papers, brilliant papers. So I'd say that that... You know, those early papers, are, are, I really... I love reading those early papers. I love the language that's used. I love the, the hand-drawn graphs. And the, yeah. And, and you can see the statistics, you know, the, the basic statistics. The maths are often in the papers themselves. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, it's, I like show you working on your exam paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you just... you you got to tip your hat, right? Like, oh, yeah. They, they know stuff about running experiments that... As I say, I go to SPSS, put the numbers in, mate. Yeah. Press, press run. Exactly. Gives me the answer. Let's go. Yeah. Next one. Next <laughs> do, one. Do, next I, one yeah. do I know the maths that underpin it? No. I, I mean, I've got a broad understanding, but yeah. I don't. You know, I don't know. Whereas the, these guys were responsible for for everything. Yeah. Um, paper at the moment. What am I reading? Um, well, I, I do read a, um, a few in a few different areas. Mm. Um, uh, one of the uh, papers that I read recently. Um, was in around sort of um, time restricted feeding. I, th- I think that's a fascinating area, um, both because it's a mixture of sort of behavioural nutrition and also, you know, pure physiology, circadian rhythms of cells, and mm. how your human body clock works. Um, but then we apply it as a, you know, a, a time restricted feeding. So there's a behavioural aspect there. What is what is somebody not eating if they're not allowed to eat from four o'clock in the afternoon? Well, you know. Um, as opposed to shifting that so they're not allowed to eat, you know, maybe until 12, until 6 or 12 until 8. Mm. And so you might have a window that's 6 hours or 8 hours in a day, but depending on when that window is may influence what a person eats. And also that window is going to be um, set against the person's circadian clock. And so I think that that sort of, um, that sort of science, I think, is, you know, very, very, very interesting, very fascinating. Um, and as I mentioned, the, the fiber type responses, you know, that individuals don't respond to the same training the same way. Mm. Individualizing both nutrition and, and exercise in order to enhance performance, I think, is a fascinating area. Um, but I also like, I, you know, I still have a thirst for some of those, you know, um, I, I, call them, I, I, I like doing barbecue science, you know, mm. science you can talk about at, at, at your barbecue. So, you know, for instance, we're doing a... I've just started a pilot study where uh, we're looking at do baristas get exposed to caffeine as part of their workplace. I told a lot of people about that. Yeah. I was like, oh, <laughs> so we're stabbing, we're stabbing baristas at the moment. You know, I, I like reading those sorts of studies. Yeah. You know, studies that someone's just had an idea and thought, yeah, we can do that. You know, it's, 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 not, it's not the main game, but it's a bit of fun. Yeah. You know, and, and that's, that's like the pod stuff behind you as well. Like, it's not... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so when we when we had a look at the Nespresso pods, well, why did we do that study? Because I asked Nespresso how much caffeine was in their pods, and they wouldn't tell me. And I, I'm like, well, if you're not going to tell me, I'll find out for myself, you assholes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's probably not the language that oh, should use. Yeah, no, nah, I, I, I was just like, I'm a consumer, yeah. right? I'm paying money. Yeah. I want to know what's in it yeah. from my own health perspective. Yeah. You're making billions of dollars on the product. I'm no George Clooney, right? Mm. Like, but I'm, I'm guessing that he probably earns a reasonable amount for standing in front of the camera. So you, you've got a bit of profit there. Yeah. The least you can do is tell me what, what's in the product. Which colour should I drink? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not, you know. For someone who's, yeah, you know, has the, I guess. And the interest in the Of area. caffeine, yeah. Yeah. In, in and so when they wouldn't yeah. tell me, I was like, ah, oh, well, I'll just find out myself. Yeah. Oh, and that's a, that's a cool skill to have as well. Yeah, so... Yeah, that, that, that and that, again, that's just come about through mm. um, 
following your nose, you know, developing great links with guys like, you know, Gary Grant and Shalindra Duke from Pharmacy. You know, yeah. they're, they're fantastic people. And that's yeah. one of the great things about working at the university as well is, you know, there, there's lots of brilliant people there, eh? Like, people oh, are just, yeah. they just, they just know their shit. And that's what I want to do with this is kind of, I'm not known to many people, but kind of branch it around all the departments and say, oh, hey, you know, talk about this so people can learn about, you know, pharmacology, psychology, engineering people, you know, like, some cool stuff, so. And, and a paper for yourself, like one of your papers that you'd like the listeners to read? Um, ooh, that's a very good question. Favourite paper of myself? Um, uh, look, oh, we, uh, in terms of, um, I, I quite like the, the alcohol work that we've done, mm. um, where we've looked at the interaction between alcohol concentration and electrolytes in terms of rehydration. Um, I think that's some of that works quite interesting from the point of view that we got into that space because people like drinking beer mm. and they drink large volumes of it. So to have an understanding of the diuretic impact of alcohol and the fact that it can be perturbated by other nutrients, it, I think is quite interesting. We've, we've published a couple of studies in that area. Um, and, and so that I'd encourage people to, you know, know, know what they're drinking <laughs> and yeah. the impact that they're likely to be drinking. Uh, and that's spawned for us um, interest in producing products that, where we might apply the science, but actually sort of you know produce products as well, mm. um, and, and you know learn some skills about that are outside of the lab, you know, a- about marketing and promotion and those sorts of things. So um, yeah, they're, they're, they're um, papers that I, I I quite like. We did a, a bit of work in adolescent nutrition as well. Mm. I um, wrote a. Um, a paper, a position statement for Sports Dietitians Australia on sports nutrition for adolescent sport, but really mm. recreational and up and coming adolescents. Yeah. Not necessarily, you know, some some adolescents are, you know, elite athletes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. In some sports, but you know, anyone who's sort of below that elite level, mm. but is competitive. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that was based around. Um, not being able to identify who is or who isn't going to make it in sport when they're an adolescent. Mm. So how do we how do we manage that process through to um, maximizing sporting potential, but also recognizing that these are human beings that we want to grow up with a healthy focus on the relationship that they have between their body and the food that they eat. Yeah, and that's so important. Like I've done a bit of stuff with volleyball and QAS and kayaking and stuff with Greg and. Like these teams are like there's some like the volleyball there's like six teams of twenty girls it's like one hundred and twenty kids and there might be five girls who go to Oz or Correct. go to the Olympics or yep. same with the kayakers there's like twelve fifteen people and on those the water. And, and those individuals will be well supported right yeah, as far as their nutrition and their management of their recovery and all the things like mm. that but at some point those five will retire yeah and they will have to go on with their life yeah. and equally there's the other hundred and five who don't make it yeah who are then left to their own devices we want to be developing an environment where people have that positive relationship between food they eat a good understanding of the impact that their nutrition can have on their health Mm. and the role that it plays in sports performance and not driving behaviors where where food is used as a vehicle to manipulate you know body composition exclusively yeah yeah Um, because we don't know for many adolescents who's going to make it or not yeah and then even at the end of the road there, there's, there's only one gold medal every four years, like, in terms of that as well, like, the, the realistic, being the realistic with the adolescents. It's probably the coach's job and the, you know, the support staff. It's quite hard for, to say to a bunch of 15-year-olds, oh, you're probably not going to make it, like, or in well, terms we, of... Well, we, we don't know. That's the yeah, point, right? You look yeah. at even somebody like Ash Barty, right? Mm. If, you, if you look at her career when she turned pro, she'd obviously sort of made it to the elite level. Mm. She got to, was it twenty twenty one and then decided, I don't want to continue with the sport and took a hiatus, went out to play cricket. Mm. She's now come back, effectively as an adult. She wasn't an adolescent when she left, but yeah. she's come back and gone to world's number one in that sport. Yeah. Now, you couldn't predict at 20 or 21 that she was going to become the world's number one. Mm. And she's beyond adolescence because athletes are human beings and, and they evolve and develop at different rates and it's about timing and it's about opportunity and all of those things and you can't you can't anticipate those things I yeah. mean I love soccer I love football mm. my mum's from Liverpool in the UK so I was brought up on football you know our best players Aaron Aaron Moy 
um, Matt Ryan, who plays in, in, in goals. Um, you know, you've got um, Tommy Rogic. I mean, Tom, Tommy Rogic, uh, who plays for Celtic, he was discovered um, through a, a Nike uh, development program. Uh, he, he was he was obviously a good footballer, mm. but he wasn't pegged from seven years of age or eight years of age as being, um, you know, a, a leading soccer player. He was a good player, but he's developed and evolved in his sort of late teens through his 20s. And that's often the case. Aaron Moy was the same. I mean, he was he was a good player in the A-League, and, and now he's a great player in the Premier League. Mm. Um, that, that That's occurred... In his in his twenties, in his early twenties, yeah. that yeah. that escalation in his career. Um, so you cannot predict in someone's adolescence where they're going to be. Mm. Um, they can go up, they can go down, and so we need to be very mindful of that for most sports. So that's that's a paper that I encourage parents and coaches and athletes themselves to yeah. have a read of. Yeah. The very last question, Ben: How was the coffee? It was actually really good. Yeah. I don't normally go to that coffee shop. Yeah, I know you usually go across to the hospital. I so. do. Yeah, I'm yeah, a bit of a coffee snob. <laughs> But that was that was not a train wreck. No, I, I enjoyed mine. Hopefully, well. this interview wasn't a train. wreck. No, this has been perfect. This has been exactly what I could have dreamed of. You know, it's been perfect. So nice. I really appreciate it, and thanks for your time. Well, good luck with your uh, your own PhD, and hopefully that conversation might be useful for some some of your audience members. Thanks so much, Ben. Cheers, mate.